Hello, I'm Matthew Packwood and welcome to Masters of Motion. Each episode, I'll be chatting to some of Australia's and New Zealand's leading motion design, animation and visual effects artists. Today I'll be talking to Nick Pell, a fantastic visual effects art director who started his career back in 1989 at Disney and worked on the pioneering film Happy Feet at Animal Logic. He then went on to an amazing career working at Rising Sun Pictures in Adelaide where he worked on the franchise series' Harry Potter, X-Men, The Hunger Games and the HBO TV series Game of Thrones and many other fantastic films. Hello, Nick. I'm a big fan of your work and I'm really excited about talking to you today. This is one I've been looking forward to. Alrighty, let's get into it. Thanks for coming. It's my pleasure. First of all, we'll talk a little bit about students and then we'll get into the production stuff. What would you like to see in a student showreel? You should keep them short, definitely. You're talking about professional people who are looking at a lot of showreels, so keep it down to a minute, roughly. Only put in your best stuff. For me, I'm more looking into environments, so realistic, photoreal environments. That's really what I'm interested in and what I employ for. How do you think students should market themselves to visual effects companies? Yeah, I think self-marketing is a huge thing. For me and art direction-wise, I would say more social media things like ArtStation. ArtStation is a really good thing. Making sure that you're you know, doing lots of posts, getting lots of hits, liking lots of people, following people, commenting on people. We're talking about students here, so building a network I think is really important. And then when you've built a network and you're quite confident with the work you've got, possibly moving into things like LinkedIn is a really handy way of contacting people. And then slowly through LinkedIn, which is similar, I guess, a professional Facebook, you can jump from one contact to the next and spread that way as well. Do you guys offer work experience for students? If you're very junior, especially if you're local, I think work experience can actually be a good thing. Now, Rising Sun in the past, especially with some of our projects, that gets harder, but they're trying to manage work experience with a small window, like say everyone comes at a particular month who is interested in work experience. I think that's a really good thing for very junior people. What do you think is the best way for students to approach Rising Sun? Approaching HR is always really good and recruitment. Rising Sun in particular teaches as well, so there's some schools, some classes you can take that will definitely give you some skills. So they're approachable in that manner. Do you think that having a degree and getting good marks is important? No, I don't think so. I think it's more about the work you actually physically have. You know, having a passion, having some great work is much better than your education and having bad work. So it it comes down to what's on paper for me. When I, I've employed people in the past who you know, have even been dyslexic or, or, or didn't finish year 12 and education doesn't seem to play a big role. But of course, there needs to be passion, right? So it's obviously the person's striving to get better and they're interested in learning, but they don't have to have an education as, as such. So now I want to talk a little bit about women in visual effects. Is there many females working at Rising Sun Pictures in production? Unfortunately, no. You know, I've been in the visual effects industry for probably 11 years and I, I would easily say that 70% are male and it could well be higher than that too. You know, That's probably me being quite nice about it. It could be about 80% male. And I really don't know what the reason for that is, but it's certainly very low. What advice would you have for women who are interested in a career in visual effects? Well, I think gender doesn't really matter. It's really, it's the same for any sex, really, if they're interested in getting into visual effects. You probably don't like sunlight. That, that would be a great start. <laughs> being in a nice dark room uh, and being used to that would be great. I, don't, can't, I, could, I wouldn't give any different advice to, to women than I would blokes or guys. I think there's just, it just seems to be we don't have many in our studio and I, I don't think that's a, you know, a sexist thing or anything. It's just purely the amount of people applying for jobs and the skill sets uh, there must, there just must be a difference, I guess, when it comes through HR. So what you're saying is if they look good on paper, it won't make any difference what gender they are. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it just comes down to what's on paper. I don't think anyone looks at anyone and says, oh, look, you know, you're too old and you're too, you know, you're the wrong sex. And uh, it really just is, you know, if you do great visual effects work and your show rule is tight, you have a strength in texturing or something and you're an amazing texture artist, then bang, you're in. It doesn't really matter what sex you are. So once you get the job at Rising Sun Pictures, 
What does it take to like thrive and get ahead? I think in any work environment, the best thing about it is the um, competition, right? Like it's a healthy competition. You're you're sitting next to like-minded people with similar tastes who are in the industry because they really enjoy it. They're going to have their own little influences and their own strengths and they're going to have, you know, software that they use or techniques that they use with that software that could enhance the person sitting next to them on either side. So, you know, sitting next to people who um, have skills that, that's what teaches you. You, know, you can actually chat to the person next to you and they can teach. They can say, hey, I'm now doing this with this sort of software and, and wow, that's cool, I'll, I'll do that too. And there's that healthy sort of camaraderie and uh, education that bounces between people when they're in a studio environment. So I think you just naturally grow just being with others. Any advice for students on what not to do? You're going to be working with people quite closely. You want to have the personality that suits others I think confidence is important, obviously, but, you know, egotistical sort of confidence is probably going a bit too far. So there's just being genuinely nice guy or girl is beneficial. And I think they pick up on that with HR, like when they're interviewing people, you can sort of tell that, oh, yeah, that guy sounds like he might be difficult to work with or that girl sounds like she might be difficult to sit with for years, you know. So you you just do need to be a nice person generally. Or work aside. Now I'd like to talk a little bit about your teaching. So what is it that you teach and where do you teach it? I teach CDW Studios. So CDW Studios is in the city here in Adelaide. Originally they were just started independently but now they've hooked up with Flinders University and we teach visual effects skills but mostly concept design and um, more creative kind of learning. So um, you could start off just learning basic principles in illustration and you can move into things like 3D modelling or rigging or texturing or a bit of matte painting. There's all sorts of different classes, but I guess it was a school started because there was no such or similar school in Australia at the time when it started. And it's great that uni's got on board now because they've seen the potential in such schools. So we're getting uni students now who um, can opt to do some of our classes to get their um, degrees in whatever arts they're doing. So, yeah, it's good. It's a really good school. So I'd like to go back now to when you were a kid. What movies did you like growing up? I was inspired by a lot of Ray Harryhausen films, actually, believe it or not. Um, Valley of the Guanji and Jason and the Argonauts, very early stuff, but it was the stop motion and the creatures and the dinosaurs, the you know, skeletons fighting with swords. And, of course, Star Wars A New Hope, the good old original, was one of my most inspirational films. So as a child, how did you discover illustration? And was there anybody who inspired you or got you into it? I think mostly I was encouraged by my father. He, although he's a minister, when he was younger, he was a, was a draftsman. So he was doing a lot of designs for powerhouses and a lot of machines, cross-section sort of industrial designs. So he was excellent at perspective and he managed to teach me quite a bit about perspective early on, which you know, is a great foundation. So he's probably what uh, got me into illustration. So it'd be great if you could run us through your career path, where you started and how you ended up at Rising Sun Pictures. Well, I finished year 12 and my father suggested getting into graphic design advertising. So he kind of turned me in the direction of TAFE. So I did a two-year advanced certificate at TAFE in graphic design advertising. And then for a year or so, I freelanced around Adelaide with uh, various advertising studios and Although the work was sort of hit and miss, it wasn't consistent enough. No one was offering full-time jobs. So we, I put a list together of places to visit in other states, basically design studios and advertising studios, and took a trip from Adelaide to Sydney and Melbourne and cold-called all the people on that list and then went and just had interviews with my folio straight out of college. And luckily one such meeting in Sydney, the guy suggested a company called Walt Disney that was just starting. It was probably in its first few months, six months or so. Before that, it was Hanna-Barbera's, but Disney bought it out. And they were looking for staff. So um, he gave me a contact number in Disney. I rang that number, got a job interview there while I was over there. They give you a test to do. I went home, did this test, which was you know Disney characters doing various things. And then I got a gig there, which was great. So went to Sydney, uh, worked at Disney and stayed there for quite a few years going through different departments, probably finished 13 years later. 
And the reason why I left Disney was purely because uh, you could see that the studios were going to be closing down. They were closing them all down around the world, the traditional studios, and that was mainly based on Pixar's success with 3D. I had heard that there was a 3D animation show called Happy Feet starting in Sydney. I thought, well, I better give those guys a call if that's the future. So I rang Animal Logic and they had a meeting with me and were kind enough to offer me a job on environment design there. And then that was a year contract. And once that contract was up, I had to look for work again. And then someone at Animal Logic had told me that Rising Sun Pictures was a great company to work for. So I approached them showed them some work and uh, luckily got a gig there and I've been there 11 years now. So that's that's my career path. Cool. You make it sound easy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you know what? I think, I think oddly enough, I've been very lucky. I think it has been easy, really. I haven't been without work. I've just sort of flowed from one to another. But if you look at it, there really is only three companies. There's Disney, Animal Logic and Rising Sun. But, you know, apart from the brief animal logic, the others have been quite stable. Um, so that's, that's been very good. So that first job you got, that must have been the hardest. With your list of 20 companies and no internet, did you find them all in the yellow pages? That's right, absolutely, all through the yellow pages, yeah. I remember that. <laughs> so I'd like to move on to your work now. Tell us a little bit about some of the projects that you've really enjoyed working on. I've worked on a lot of great films now uh, and there's a lot, especially the Potter ones, like they, they've been the ones, the Harry Potter films for me have been the, the dream jobs. They've, they've been very creative, excellent clients, you know, beautiful work. The story itself and the films themselves are very tight and that just, you know, I can watch them over and over again and totally forget I worked on them just because I enjoy them, the whole magic of it all. But on a personal level, I think probably a very small TV, low-budget job we did here in Adelaide was quite fun, and that was the Anzac Girls series that came through here uh, and went to, I believe, the ABC. And I enjoyed that because when the budgets are low, then you have to think differently, and I think there's challenges that come out of not having much money and, and doing that efficiently. And also there's opportunities that arise that you don't normally get. So particularly on Anzac Girls, there was the opening titles that they had no idea on what to do or how to do it. So I got to create the ideas on that, storyboard them and see it through to finish production. And that, that for me was fun and I, I really quite liked the opening titles. I thought they were quite powerful and I got a chance to be you know, creative in a different way. So that, that always makes things fresh and exciting. So that's probably one of my favourite. Have you had any failures along the way and what did you learn from them? Failures certainly do happen and I think people are generally pretty kind about failures yeah, we're looking at an industry where it's not just one person who is producing the outcome. There's there's hundreds of people um, putting or valuating to get something done. So there there are instances where you know I could do an early uh, concept or illustration that is supposed to lead people in a particular direction, and then either for various reasons, clients changing minds or uh, or finding that that direction just isn't really. The, the right direction later on, that, you know, that can be deemed as a failure. But I think things are learnt from it. One of the best things I, I've learnt is that as an art director, it's, it's not really up to you to be the one that has the finished look. You're really there to value add or, or to help or support um, and everyone there is to do the same. So sometimes I think you just have to realise that it's, it's not all on your shoulders. So one of the things is asking for help when you need help, but doing that earlier I think is something you can learn quite quickly. There's no shame in saying, wow, this is, I think this is out of my capabilities. Uh, can I enlist this person to help me? So using other people as crutches, I think, is, is an important learning thing for me out of um, some small failures. Has there been any missed opportunities either in your career or at the studios you've worked at? Yeah, from a studio point of view, obviously um, bidding on work, there's, there's work that comes across tables that, you would hope to work on and you're, you're keen on work on and they, and they get lost and they're, you know, they're disappointing opportunities. But, the, you know, that can be all sorts of factors. You never know. Uh, you can be outbid or things just change. There's, there's also um, stuff in play with different countries offering different rebates and things. So that's challenging. The other thing, I guess, on a personal level is you're talking about jobs that you could work on. And, yeah, sure, there's, I've had some offers that uh, you sort of think, oh, that'd be great to take, but for various reasons, you know, you have to say no to. But in the long run, I think it sort of irons itself out. If you hang around long enough, there's still lots of good shows that, that come across. So, 
it's all good in the end. So over your career, have you worked lots of long hours and what are the production schedules like? Yeah, definitely. You can certainly work long hours, especially in the visual effects industry. I find it, I've now worked in advertising, graphic design, uh, animation industry, and now the visual effects industry. And I I think definitely visual effects industry has this um, long hours problem. And I think it's something you as an individual should learn how to manage. Uh, You need to be honest with the amount of work you can take on. You need to be honest early in feedback on whether that time that you've been given is reasonable or not. And um, usually things can be done, whether that's giving it out to other artists or whatever to try and manage your time. But yes, generally the hours are long in visual effects. I try to manage my time to avoid that and I have been fairly good at it actually in the past 10 or so years. So So do most production people work overtime on weekends? It really comes down to delivery times. Obviously all movies have release dates. We all watch trailers and they say, coming November 19th, and you go, oh, wow, okay. Well, that means that all the visual effects guys have to make sure it is done well before November 19th. So, yes, there will be crunch times where people just simply have to work around the clock. There's obviously remuneration for those kind of things. But, yeah, it's not the greatest. But, yes, it's expected. And it's usually at the end when it's coming closer to final delivery that that stuff starts to snowball. What was the hardest thing you had to learn throughout your career? I was traditional. Everything at Disney was traditional pencil and paper. They started near the last half of my career there. They started using you know, computers for colouring, but they'd still use, you know, they'd scan pencil work in, clean it up and then colour it digitally. So it was the digital transition, I think. Probably the, the scariest moment of my career was leaving Disney because it was 13 years, so it was the younger part of my career and knowing that things were changing into 3D. But, but seeing Pixar films and loving 3D, but then how do I actually get to learn that myself and get to those standards? So, yes, I, I left for Animal Logic, which was great because it, it was, you know, a 3D film, digital film. So you could see the pipeline, you could get a bit of an understanding. And whilst I was at Animal Logic, I took up a TAFE course learning Maya and did that for part time. I think it was once a week for four months or so. And I struggled with that. I definitely struggled with that. But yeah, that has been tough. The 3D transition was the toughest part. Tell us a little bit about working at Disney and what did you like about it? Yeah, working at Disney was fantastic. I I loved it. I loved everything about Disney, actually. It really fit me like a glove. The people there, the age of everyone was about the same. You know, we're all in our, you know, mid-20s and whatever. And it was great to finally get to a position where you're in a a building with, you know, two or three hundred people who were like-minded, had the same tastes, So it was fun, you know, just a great environment. Loved it. What sort of projects did you do at Disney? Yeah, when I first started at Disney, uh, it was just TV work. So we did gummy bears, uh, Darkwing Ducks, Goof Troops. But then they found this niche market or this new market, which was direct-to-video. So VHS was, was getting more popular and people were buying it more. So they started to do sequels, basically, which were feature length. So they would pick up things like Lion King and we'd do Lion King 2, Lion King 3, we do Aladdin 2, Aladdin 3, but they were huge successes and they were making a lot of money. They were tight deadlines. I guess the features in LA would take about three or so years to do, whereas we would do them about one feature length direct-to-video every eight months. So it was, it was certainly challenging, but there was incredibly talented people working there. Our work was highly respected by a lot of people, especially knowing the deadlines we had. And so that was basically the projects, anything that was a sequel. So now I want to talk about the pivot point in your career. So you moved from Disney to Animal Logic and you worked on Happy Feet, a very important Australian film, a real pioneer in 3D animation. What was your role on Happy Feet and what were the challenges? And could you tell us a little bit about the experience? Yeah, working on Happy Feet was absolutely brilliant. The main thing was that Animal Logic had been around doing a lot of successful visual effects work in a lot of films previous to this, but they wanted to move into this market knowing that it was a big market and also had struck some deal with Warner Brothers to do X amount of films. And the first one was Happy Feet with uh, George Miller directing. So not only did I get to work more creatively on a film because the structure at Disney was, was incredibly structured. So, you know, storyboard departments in between and layout departments and cleanup departments and animation departments, they all had a formula, a process to get there. Whereas 
And a lot of the information, especially working on sequels, had already been designed and just shipped over to us. So we sort of followed almost like a Bible of things to do. Whereas with Animal Logic on Happy Feet, they were a brand new studio for animated feature film. And it was important to understand the process. So whilst I was there, there was a lot of talk and discussions about pipelines, setting them up efficiently. How had Pixar been working? How can we adopt things that we think are going to be successful for Animal Logic? So there was a lot of meetings in the first few months. And so there was also a lot of opportunity to design everything just from scratch, like everything was designed there. So that was a big difference from what Disney had. Uh, where designs just came to us from Los Angeles from previous films. And I was in the environment design department. So we got to design what all the environments were going to look like or all the sequences. And it, it was great. You know, it was really good. And like I said, it was a big career changer for me because I now really had to rely more on Photoshop and using a digital kind of medium for getting my information across. But uh, Animal Logic did everything right with that film and, and deservedly got an Oscar for it as well and uh, have been doing amazing animated feature films since. So to have that powerhouse in Australia is, you know, not to be underestimated. It's pretty amazing. And to be there when it first started was great, especially the hands-on you get with a director like George Miller, who is, you know, based in Sydney from all the Mad Max films and things. So he would be in-house a lot and uh, daily we we would have reviews with him so he could look at, you know, what we had illustrated for the environments and he could select them and say, oh, you know, this one's uh, too over the top. Oh, I want to make it more photo real and hyper real. So, you know, there's a lot of feedback and anecdotes and whatever else that came out of those meetings, which was fantastic. So, yeah, on a completely different immersed sort of environment than Disney had been in the past. So it was excellent experience. At Animal Logic, you were an environment supervisor. Describe that role for us. And did you do a lot of matte paintings or is that later on in the production? Well, we didn't really do too many matte painting, not my department. We were more about designing the environments. And then once those designs were approved, just in simple sort of illustrations or photo bash sort of images, then those would move into the modeling department. And the good thing was that the artists got to carry their artwork literally, you know, almost physically into the modeling department and sit with the modelers and say, hey, here's my brief. This is this is what I want this environment to look like. These are the type of snow or rocks that, you know, that's going on. So they got to hand it on to the modelers before it went into that sort of round. So there was a, there was a nice process between departments, I think. But uh, matte paintings, that, that happened a lot later and I'd actually left the studio. Being there only for a year, we spent that time just on designing environments. Um, matte painting came later in the process. What were the bigger things that you learned in the year you were working at Animal Logic? Probably one of the big ones, actually, is working with a great team. I had some artists, there was six in my team on the environment design, and they were brilliant, and they still are. You know, a lot of them are still there or have moved on to other things, but they were, they were brilliant. And, you know, when you work with people that are that good, um, they only make you look even better. So, so that was one thing I actually did learn was that make sure that when you do employ people, surround yourself with, you know, talented people and they just it just makes everything easier. But it was the challenges of painting as well in, in Photoshop. So I dabbled with Photoshop previously at home, whatever the Photoshop was back then, probably two. There were guys there who could outpaint me, outstrip me really, uh, even though I was supervising them, um, they could certainly out, outstrip me with their skills. And But they were kind enough and um, to, to show me their techniques. So I did a lot of learning on the job there, which was really good. I'm going to ask you about something a little bit different. Advantage Adelaide, what was that all about? Yeah, Advantage Adelaide was, um, that was great. It was, it was, I was approached out of the blue, but basically they were looking for a poster boy, someone who had, had an interesting career and could be used to advertise to uh, the younger crowd moving through that there are jobs that are still interesting in, in Adelaide. So, you know, you don't need to flee the city kind of uh, thing. So there was this campaign and, and luckily enough, I was selected for the billboards. So there was huge images of my massive forehead plastered all around Adelaide and, and on bus stops too, which was great. That was a bit of a buzz. But mind you, I was catching the bus then too. So I'd be on the bus looking at a bus stop with my face on it, looking around and no one cared. No one knew, but, but it was a buzz. It'd be great if you could describe the billboard for me. What did it look like? They went Terminator because I think at the time we were working on Terminator Salvation. So they, were, they, they actually wanted to set me up as Harry Potter, I think, with a scar on my forehead. There was plenty of room to put a scar on there. But uh, we couldn't really get approvals with Warner Brothers at the time. So 
apparently the Terminator Salvation guys were okay with that. So they kind of put the red Terminator eye in me, uh, in my face, and uh, some lightning bolts and a bit of, you know, some star nebula thing going on. So, you know, in the end, it probably didn't look like me at all. It was definitely fun. It was interesting having a photo shoot going through the process was, was definitely good fun. Now I'd like to talk a little bit about how you became a art director and animation supervisor. How did you develop your skills and what were the important steps you took along the way to becoming an art director? I never really pictured myself becoming an art director. That was just something that sort of evolved. And I think, you know, your your careers in general sort of evolve into other things. You never really know what's around the corner. Working at Disney, you have to understand that every single morning when you get to work, you you basically would pull a blank piece of paper off the top of your shelf, put it on your light box, get your pencil sharpened, and then look at a blank piece of paper. And I think there's certain basic principles that you start to learn to understand so that that blank piece of paper soon gets something visual on top of it. And Disney was and still is the creator of most of that sort of visual process and all the principles, they would study the principles and they'd use select particular things to do in their films. And there would be, like I said earlier, a Bible of things, do's and do nots for every single film that they produce. And working at Disney was probably the foundation for for everything really. And it's, it's basically some rules that when you start to make a mark on a piece of paper that you, you realise that, oh, well, there's a reason, there's got to be a reason behind everything. And you can sort of then self, you know, you can be self-critical and you can look at your work and say, oh, look, this doesn't work for this reason, this reason, you know, there's a tangent or there's the colours are too bright here, so it's distracting the eye away from the centre of attention. So there's all these things there that, you know, you learn, otherwise you, you could freeze up. So so Disney would have been the, the place for that. And also we used to, the company used to bring in people to talk. Uh, and one of those people, other than Ray Harryhausen, who I mentioned earlier, was bloody fantastic but one of these people was called Bruce Block as well and he he had written a book uh, I think it's still available on Amazon it's a great book called The Visual Story and that book inspired me a lot and also his talk inspired me took me to another level so I highly recommend um, getting a hold of Bruce Block's book Visual Story and that started to break down art direction in very simple manageable terms and um, and so that that's probably one of the the biggest inspirations for me and so Disney really led me into everything else, I think. How did you go from being an independent artist to managing other artists? And what were the important things you had to learn to be able to do this well? But as far as managing people, I think, again, Disney would take supervisors on trainings. You know, we, we, we would do training for management, you know, personality group trainings and understanding uh, staff members. And so there was, there was actually a lot of that that went into managing staff it's you certainly weren't just thrown in, into the thick of it so finding a balance too was important understanding that yes you represent the company but you also represent the individuals below you and just finding that balance of how you can best make everyone happy again i would say disney taught a lot of that and you know rising sun to their credit do that as well there's a lot of training for um supervisors just to make sure that you know they're on top of the skills of managing people. Was there any other people or things that influenced you along the way? That's one of those big questions, isn't it? I think it's, it's mainly been small people who influence you, really. You know, it's just everyone you work with, I think, influences you more than those big names. Oh, you know, Steven Spielberg or, you know, George Lucas or it comes down to the small people. And, and also just, you know, watching art, art station, just shifting through art station and watching, you know, nature things is always really cool inspiration-wise. I'd like to now move on to process. So once you get a script in, what are your processes for generating ideas? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. The one I refer to the most is probably on the Hunger Games. We had these, we had a few creatures. We had the mutts and we also had these um, insects called the tracker jackers. And I think the process on that one worked quite well. So we had the script. Uh, also, in most cases, feature films come from novels of some sort. So you can read a novel as well. That usually gives you a lot more information than a script. A script's generally about dialogue rather than description. So it's always handy to read a novel if it exists. I would read the novel. I'd jot down just key elements. You go online, you would work out what fan people might have already painted, especially if it's a popular novel like The Hunger Games was. And just try and work out, you know, what's been done a bit, what's been discussed by nerds, you know, because there's all sorts of um, groups out there discussing these books. And then in the case of The Hunger Games, 
I tried to work it down more as getting the forms right. So even though we're dealing with just what is essentially a wasp, I wanted to work out the body type. So I kind of researched wasps and there were what I could see of, as four different sorts of body types. There was like mud wasps and there was, you know, there was ones that burrow in the ground or whatever. And they all had sort of different body types. So my first presentation was actually just references of the different, the four different body types. And then on top of that, I added to, because these are hybrid sort of creatures um, that are manufactured by man. And they're also supposed to be quite aggressive. So then I just started to find other insects like praying mantises or rhino beetles and, and even awful ones like flies, you know, disgusting ones. And then I just did one option in there that was a body type with a few kind of other organic kind of changes to it. And I presented those body types in black and white as well. So I didn't, I tried to narrow it down to just say, hey, let's look at the body in black and white form. Is this good? And then we'll go through a color round. So I think, I think that in this case made it quite manageable. Uh, so once we sort of narrowed down the body shape, I could do another round on just getting that right. And then when that was approved, I moved into color. And in the books, for instance, um, you know, they said that they were bright gold. So I supplied, I generally try and supply three or four options. It gets the client invested in the conversation and it also helps fine tune a direction to take. There'd be nothing worse than sending one image and sort of saying, hey, I reckon this is it. And and leaving the director out of things um, is just not the right way to go. So, you know, the director has his input. And oddly enough, uh, you know, I had gold on one scale, say, and then down the other end was almost black with tiny little bits of this orangey gold on it. And, you know, the black one just looked meaner. So, and the director saw that and we sort of slid down to the other end of the scale, which was black, which is totally opposite to, you know, what the books say. But it's, you know, director's choice and it did look cool. So, so that, that process was pretty good, just splitting it out into a shape, a, a black and white sort of form, and then playing around with colour and then getting that final. So that, you know, that went through probably about four rounds, which is pretty good to get a character finaled. And we did the similar sort of approach on the mutts as well. That was a good process. That was a pretty well-described answer. Did you have that written down? No, no, but it's, I think it's easier if you can at least focus on an example rather than getting just a bit... Because, you know, everything has its own challenges, right? Like, that, you know, directors will want to see different things. Some, some don't interpret uh, a, an image unless it's moving, so then it has to move to another department but or I paint a lot of frames to, to give the illusion that it's moving. So you, you have to read what the director or the visual effects supervisor is interpreting well and then move on through that. You know, everyone's a bit different but that's probably a good example of something that worked well. So now I'd like to talk a little bit about clients. What challenges do you face when communicating with directors and producers and what methods do you use to try and interpret the brief and deliver them better results? I think communications is a huge thing and Rising Sun obviously understood that from the word go when they started the company was that, you know, hey, we're in Adelaide, how do we communicate with people in Los Angeles? So one of the biggest things they did was set up their own, it was before Skype, they set up um, CineSync, which they were, they won an Oscar for. So, and CineSync is actually now run by every major studio in, in the world. So it was a huge success and that was basically Skype, but you could view um, artwork together real time and you could draw and, and make marks on that artwork to help describe the changes that were needed. So, so that was probably the, the biggest thing that, that cured you know, the tyranny of distance for, for every company. That was huge. And then as far as communicating with clients themselves, you know, it's a weekly thing. So generally we have weekly calls uh, giving clients what the, what they need, it, it's really that discussion process. You know, there, there's always a, a kickoff, like a brief. They'll send us as much information visually as they can, uh, but if nothing exists, then then we we just make a mark. Really, we we get that blank page. We make we make a couple of options based on that that kickoff um, brief, and and we send it back. And you know, and that's the. On one hand, that's a more exciting time because um, you're really exploring things, but also it's a nerve-wracking time too because you, you want the client to at least see something that hopefully sparks with them and they go, oh, yeah, wow, yes, I can see that now and how about we go this way and that way. So, um, yeah, having that and also having the delay of possibly a week or a couple of days before you, you know, talk to them again, it, yeah, it's nerve-wracking, but you know, in the end, everyone will both sides, you know, client side and, and studio side, wants to do the best they can. So 
um, everyone works together to, to get there. It's a great industry. That was very positive. Well, Nick, that didn't sound that challenging. Surely you have more difficulties with clients than that. We, we have had difficult clients. That's, that's for sure. That you know, it's going to exist where there is difficulty between companies, and uh, and um, but you work through it, and sometimes your best work comes out of that kind of confrontation. And, and honesty is a good thing, right? Like, so I think sometimes it gets when it gets grey, where you're working with people who are so friendly that they almost don't want to tell you that you're going the wrong direction kind of thing or they give you small clues that you have to interpret and that that can be even more dangerous than someone just putting their foot down and saying, you know what, no, wrong direction, change. So you just have to change tact, right? You just have to sit down and say, right, right, okay, right, now that sucks and that's a kick in the, in the guts but let's, let's resolve this, let's go this way. And we were talking about failures before and I think the, the way we or the way I perceive failure in the visual effects industry is when it goes to someone else. So, you know, you could be working on something and you've been painting an image for a while and you've been going through a few rounds and you think you're getting there and then the client says, oh, uh, we've given that to an external vendor to, to concept. You know, and that happens, you know, where they just think, oh, no, we'll just we'll hand that somewhere else. We're not getting it from these guys. We'll give it to someone else and then we'll give that back to you. So, you know, there's times when that happens and yeah, it's kicking the pants, but you know, the stuff they give back to you, if when you look at it and you go, yeah, you know what, that is actually a good direction and that is nice, you know, and that's great, nice execution and stuff. You, you can't just sort of look and go, oh, I don't like that one. You really do have to get the positive out of it so that, you know, you can progress, I think, and move, and move on. So, but it's never a really nasty thing. It's just that they know that they can get their results from someone else. And sometimes it's that distance thing, that tyranny of distance. Hey, the director's free only on this day and if we have an artist working in-house with the director then we can make sure they're seeing each other face to face and they're getting that that kind of communication across which sometimes can be trickier being remote yeah nick i i really agree with what you're saying i generally find that when you do revisions it gets better the more time you have the better it generally gets yeah you get a better understanding of what you're dealing with and you know you, you sink into it it's, it's hard when deadlines are really tight because there is a certain amount of probably osmosis that has to happen you know where stuff research kind of sinks into the subconscious and influences you differently. So as an art director, who do you answer to and who do you direct? I answer to the visual effects, the studio visual effects, or not the studio, the, I will ask, you know, the internal visual effects supervisor is the person I answer to. So he or she will give me briefs and try and keep me under control a little bit. Um, I do have the ability to work on things that I've, see in you know i could see a shot for instance and say hey i think that one might be struggling talk to the visual effects soup first and sort of say hey could i do a little bit of a paint over on this and see whether we could improve this and they would say you know generally they say yeah that no that's a good idea so then i'll go on and do something uh, on that side but i can also um you know work directly with compositors as well not only am i the visual effects art director there but i'm also like doing some matte paint work and it's you know it's kind of all hands on deck we're a studio of probably 160 people and so you do need that sort of versatility at times when perhaps i'm not designing anything new environment wise but there's a show in production that needs some help and we're at the matte painting end of things you know the end of production and we need some skies or we need some mountains so in that case, yes, I would work pretty closely with the um, compositors so that when I hand over a piece of work, they can put it through the comp and then show it back to me and say, hey, look, you know, this mountain's actually turned pink. What the hell happened there? And I'll go and fix it. And um, so there's, yeah, there's compositors and there's modelers as well. You know, we could design something that needs to be modeled like an environment and we can go up to the modelers and just see what they're building. But it's mostly value adding too. Like I don't expect anything I do ever to be golden and hey, look at that, that's it. Now make sure it's that. Whereas I really like the process where as it moves through another department, you know, someone puts another little tweak on it or another thing and and you see that it's growing and becoming something better. Especially with modeling. You know, they can model, you know, rocks that are much better than you you know, imagine when you're painting and go, wow, wow, they're looking great. And the texture guys could texture them. So, yeah, I can deal with texture artists as well and give them briefs on textures. And it's usually, you know, photo, you know, key photo images that are appropriate for the task. Yeah, I do, do a lot of different departments, yeah. So now I'd like to talk a little bit about your personal art direction style. How do you deliver yourself and what is your manner when it comes to directing people? And also, how do you work with others when you're directing as a team? 
I'm probably quite quiet, really. I sit a bit under the radar. Like visual effects soups, I've realised in in this industry, are, are very you know creative people anyway. They're in those roles because they're not only just technically minded, they're also creatively minded. So you're there as a support to them. It's more about discussing alternatives and directions to take than it is about dictating. So certainly I'm very inclusive with my art direction. I don't think I'd be you know, the guy who just says, it's like this and that's it. Because like I said, evaluating once people are invested in something, they, they tend to bring something more to it. So it's, it's always good to get people more inspired than it is to throw the handcuffs on them. Okay, so now I'd like you to pick a project from your time at Rising Sun Pictures and walk us through the process from start to completion. Probably the best project to talk about would be the X-Men Days of Future Past and it was the sequence with Quicksilver in the kitchen of the Pentagon. It took about six months probably to do that sequence. Uh, I'd only be guessing how many shots, but I'd say it was probably about 15 shots in there. I guess screen time, it ran for about probably a minute and a half, two minutes. The, the nice thing about that is it was a containable sequence and, and I hope people sort of understand with visual effects is that, you know, a lot of people touch a feature film, especially a lot of stu- different studios do visual effects on feature films and sometimes it crosses over. Some are doing a character, for instance, a Spider-Man or something that is in another shot with someone else who's doing the explosion in that shot. So there's cross-fender work sometimes which gets tricky but... Some of the best things to get is a containable sequence and that kitchen sequence in X-Men was a very containable sequence whereas it was just us on it and we could focus on um, the process to get that done. Uh, also, it was probably a smaller crew that we had on that even though it was quite a sizable amount of work and I think the way we worked on that was really efficient and it showed obviously by being nominated for an Oscar for the experience on that one was was really tight. Even though, of course, it's always a challenge for any artist to get you know, certain things done um, in a lot of times, it still was, I think, we had a, a fairly good focus on what we needed to do. And we knew at the time when we got that sequence that it was going to be kind of special. So that also enthused people to work just that little bit uh, more creatively on it. The process for something like that is obviously the the client shoots these things you know so they'll shoot in the studio wherever whatever part of the world and then they deliver us those plates and then we have to clean those plates up now with a particular sequence like that it's stereoscopic as well which most people refer to as 3d i guess in cinemas but we have to wear the glasses so that offers you know another challenge as well because you're dealing with a left eye and a right eye for every single frame of film so we were reviewing things with, you know, the 3D glasses on so we could see um, how things work uh, in in space as well. But from my side of the coin, it was really nice to be able to manage the animation department as well as creatively on the layout department and also art direct and conceptualise things in the beginning. So there was a really nice loop of tasks for me to do and they all sort of ran on to each other but the composition of every one of those shots. You know, the first port of call for us was to build all the assets. You know, you got spoons and knives and forks. You know, not very interesting things. You know, carrots and eggplants, which are you know totally uninteresting things, but they were going to be used in a quite an interesting manner. And then the environment itself, we do. You get given a lidar or a three D scan of the environment of the kitchen of the set. You get obviously digital scans for all the characters as well, and we match move those into place. Match moving is basically. Uh, layout would follow the exact movement of a character but match move now is in stereo so we're going to make sure that in space it's sitting in exactly the right place not just position of hands and things to match to the live action so it's a very tricky series of pipeline steps for something like that and the first port of call too is you know when all this stuff gets flung into the air before time freezes or slows down we would put everything literally in this 3d environment And then from every camera, we could sort of set up what we would see through that camera. But then you would always find that there would be an eggplant, you know, across someone's face or a carrot sticking in someone's ear and whatever else. So then you go through a whole creative round of where can you put those pieces that make it aesthetically look a whole lot nicer. And then you've got bullets traveling through, you know, through the air in slow motion as well. And how how you place those bullets to make the most out of stereo as well. So there's a lot of fun involved with that. And, uh, you know, and then right at the end, when everything becomes real time again, you have to drop all those elements and run them through simulations. And 
with simulations, it's always where does something end up falling? Does that look nice? You know, and you end up the easiest thing is to go and cull things and say, oh, remove those two carrots or those chopped up pieces, they fall in funny spots. But you end up managing and, and controlling things. So even though you can look at a small sequence like that and think, oh, yeah, you know, there's carrots in the air, that's cool, and some raindrops, the placement of every one of those sort of items is, you know, critiqued and reviewed internally just so that they all sit in an aesthetically pleasing place. As subtle as it is, at the end of the day, you know, there is a lot of refinement that happens through various stages to make sure that the audience doesn't, you know, they get a really nice experience out of it. And so, so for me, I think that was a great process to, um, to be on and to see everything evolve that way and, and get refined to that point. And, you know, and in the end, the client was ecstatic about it and we were ecstatic about it. And, you know, and as a result, you, you get good publicity too. So that's probably a good example of some of the process, especially on my side, you know, I'm more of a creative sort of thinker than I am and sort of technical. So you need to go to someone else for the technical. It'd be great if you could tell us a little bit about your personal projects and if you think they're important. I think it's pretty important to do yeah, personal stuff, main, mainly because there's some tools that you don't get to use that often, um, software tools that work, and it's good to be able to stay you know, frosty with them and, and, and keep practicing. So ZBrush is something I like to do on a personal level. I use it at work uh, on occasion, but just not as often as I'd like. So I'm always looking for an opportunity at work to introduce that tool. Or um, in my own time, especially with teaching at CDW, that's the software that I teach. Um, so that ten- tends to be my passion project, really, working on that. And the other thing is, you know, ideas for films or shorts. I like to always scribble down little ideas. They never really make it anywhere, but I just like to, you know, get creative on story and, and write things down. Put You know, it feels good just to to lose myself in some of my own ideas now and then. To this day, none of it's ever seen the light. But you know, who knows? It, I enjoy the process. So. Your personal stuff is awesome to look at. What inspires you to create dinosaurs and monsters? Yeah, I guess that full circles back with inspiration. Like I said, right at the very beginning, Ray Harryhausen did actually play a big role, and I did get get to meet him and tell him that. And uh, I thought, here he is. I'll tell him that you know how in, much inspiration he's given me in the past with creatures and and um you know in movies in general and uh as i when i mentioned it to him he just said well it kept you off the streets i thought oh what that wasn't what i wanted to hear but um yeah it it is basically just growing up with a lot of creatures and monsters and it's hard to get work on creatures and monsters so i tend to do it for my own benefit and i'm a huge dinosaur fan i love dinosaurs they're as close as we'll ever get to having real monsters so, um, yeah, so I try and muck around a bit with dinosaurs. Uh, been getting into 3D scanning. Oh, sorry, what is it? The um, picture, photo scanning. Photo scanning is um, something that's kind of cool at the moment. So I've gone to a few museums and taken some sneaky photos of their bones um, and photo scanned those into 3D models. So I'm hoping to ZBrush over the top of those to get some cool-looking dinosaurs. I don't get as much time as I would really like, you know, obviously with family and, and whatever else. Um, in the odd times, and that's why I do teach. It forces me to do that work and keep me frosty, and it also helps educate other people in the techniques and styles. So it's a win-win, really. It's good. With the work you create and put online, do you get much positive feedback? It's nice to get some recognition and some feedback, and you know, it's nice watching the hit meter go up and say, oh, yeah, look at that. It's not the most important thing, though, for me. For me, it's about just doing the technique. The thing I find, with especially with ZBrush, is that it tends to force me to be more realistic with what I do because traditionally I'm from early animation background, so I've tended to be quite stylized and cartoony. So to get into visual effects, everything sort of flips around to more realistic. So ZBrush has helped me achieve that, and so I use that tool in that manner. But just recently I think I'll start... Um, ZBrushing more cartoony looking um, creatures because I'd like to get back to that as well and flex the old uh, the old stylized route would be nice. So where do you go to find inspiration? Are you interested in books or do you go online or do you look at like things at the zoo? Yeah, I have a huge collection of books, art of books from all sorts of films. I ju- I've had to stop. I just ran out of room. I've got a spare room, it's chockers, and I've got some in the shed. <laughs> so uh, the art of books are, are fantastic. I've always loved that. 
little maquettes too. I love getting tiny little sculpts from other people. There's anatomy tools have marvelous human anatomies figures that you can buy that, that are great. I've just recently bought my first T-Rex skull. It's a 3D scan, but scaled down. So it's not too big. doesn't take up the living room. So I get inspiration from skulls and, and bones, which seems kind of creepy, but there's something interpretive about their shapes, which you can sort of build into something new. The uh, art station, you know, I look at that a lot. There's also the problem of looking at it too long and it can almost kill your creative way forward so just managing that a little bit and mostly nature right like photos of creatures out there that you always find a new creature and just go what the hell is that like uh, i think yesterday i was looking at um moray eels and there's one with glass teeth it's got glass teeth what the hell is that so you know there's great crazy things in nature that never cease to amaze so nature's probably one of the best One last final question. With your work, what sort of movies would you like to work on in the future? And with your personal projects, is there anything else you'd like to explore? You know, there's a bucket list, obviously, I think, of films. I've been lucky enough to get on to, you know, the Game of Thrones franchise thing, so that was good, doing season six of Game of Thrones. And there was a bit of Terminator, which was great. So there's been a few I got off the bucket list. And the Harry Potters, you know, know, brilliant. But uh, I'm still longing for a Spider-Man I'd uh, really like to be on a Star Wars. That would be incredible. Um, so they're probably the two major bucket list films I've got. Uh, and then, you know, obviously projects we're on now is, is pretty hush, so I can't really, you know, contractually or anything talk about those. But um, there is good films in-house and more to come, no doubt. So, you know, as much as there's a few on my bucket list, there's always others that turn up that you think, yeah, that's cool. So in future like I said, I was probably going more to cartoony in a personal future would be nice in my sculptures or my drawings. So going back to my old roots would be cool. But uh, yeah, other than that, that's it. I really enjoyed your story, Nick. It's fantastic to hear that such amazing work has been created in Adelaide. Thanks very much for taking the time to share your experience with us. It's my pleasure. Anytime, Matthew. It's been great. Awesome. All right. Done and dusted. Thanks very much for listening. And if you like what you heard, please give us a review on iTunes. And you can check us out at mastersofmotion.com.au where you can see all the work we talked about today and lots more outstanding motion design work. Or you can come find us on Facebook. You can find Nick Pill at rsp.com.au or at artstation.com. Our intro music was by the Australian artist John Vella. Hope you have a good week. See you later. Bye. Motion. Bye bye.